chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Thank you, William, for those thoughts. Um, You know, uh, sacrifice being uh, giving up something more precious or giving up something precious to something or someone that we consider more precious than us. That's something I I, I didn't write it down. I should have. But it but it it reminded me of uh, so many thoughts that uh, that's a whole different sermon. But it, uh, one of the things that I, I came to realize years ago is not only does the sacrifice of Jesus show us how horrible sin is, but it also shows us how precious we are. Because if our sins could be washed away by the blood of a chicken, we would be worth a chicken. I mean, if you think about this. And we would act that way, too. If, if our sins could be taken care of by the blood of bulls and goats... That would be our value in God's sight. And we would act like bulls and goats. We act, we live up to those standards. And so when, when he sacrificed himself, the blood of Jesus, he is really saying, listen, this is how much I value you. You are more precious <laughs> than my son. And when we realize that, it should call us to that standard of living, to be like him, to reflect him, as as William went on to say. But that's just a wonderful thought for us to reflect on. I hope you thought of that. I hope you continue to think of that. We're looking at uh, the churches in the, the seven churches of Asia. Last week we started this. I'm trying to say, teach these lessons in each church, each city in one lesson to kind of, you know, have it all together in a package. It's very difficult. I ran out of time last week, so we have part two. Um, And we're looking at the church of Thyatira, and I entitled it Better Than Ever. Um, You know, I'm so, uh, I was so much in thought of William's thought that I didn't get my notes out. (laughs) I should have kept on going. Now I got my notes out. And one thing we looked at of these people in Thyatira, this is a picture I, I took while I, while I was there back in April, is these were working class people. We would call these salt of the earth people. They worked with their hands. Some of them in bronze work, someone with hot furnaces, uh, shaping metal into different usable objects. Some were making pottery, bowls and plates and pitchers for daily use. Others dyed cloth. And we we, uh, talked about one, Lydia, that we find in the book of Acts. And she worked in purple. People who dyed cloth and then sold it. Uh, She was the first convert from this city. And if you look at the city, nothing was appealing about it. There was no impressive temples. There were none of the great temples like you see in Pergamum and and uh, down in Ephesus, some temples as you walked in would just take your breath. There's nothing like this in Thyatira. Uh, there were no fortifications, no big walls, nothing impressive like that. These people were just, they got up, they were apprenticed as young people. They went to work. They joined the trade guilds or the trade unions. They, they worked hard. They fed their families. 
Perhaps some of them saved some money for later on when they couldn't work any longer. They had children. They had grandchildren who followed in their steps, learning those trades, passing those skills down to the next generation. These are people that a lot of us can relate to, even those who who have moved to white collar jobs know what it's like to work with your hands. Many of you do, and many of you have worked hard jobs all day long. That's what these people were. That's who these people are. And he sent a message to them. And let's read it again. Verses 18 through, um, through the end of that chapter in chapter 2. Um, he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, And whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are doing, now doing, more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of foods, of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, And have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we introduced this last week. We covered part of it. I just want to quickly remind those of you who were here what we uh, covered. And for those who weren't, we're just going to you're going to get a touch of it. And we looked at the Christian struggle. The, what, what were these people struggling about? And I want us to put ourselves in their shoes, in their place as we go to each city. And their struggle had to do with these trade unions, these trade guilds. Uh, They were all connected to worship of certain gods and there would be sacrifices honoring gods and the feasting that took place as they honored these gods. And so in order to work there, you had to be connected with a union or a trade guild. And in order to be a part of that, you had to participate in idol worship. Years ago, when we were in Fiji, Julia had a uh, was went with a young Christian lady who had been a Hindu and the, Julia taught her and we baptized her and uh, they went to a, a baby shower for an, a, Hin, a Hindu family. And as they were sitting there on the floor, the people came out and they had a tray with fruit and vegetables and they were passing it around. And of course, Julia's going, oh, good, something to eat. And as they came up, the, new, the young Christian beside her said, don't take any of that. That's been offered to idols. And so we can, you know, we don't have that experience here, but that we do have that experience in the world sometimes where there's certain foods that are connected to idol worship. And so in, to her, it was 
food that she needed. <laughs> but she said, you know, my Christian sister here will stumble if I partake of this. So she didn't. And it was more than that with these people in, in Thyatira. They, by doing it, they were connected with the union. By doing it, they were connected to the God, whatever the God of that union was. And if you didn't participate in trade guild worship, you would probably lose your job. A lot of them either lost their jobs or struggled making a living there. Then we looked at Jesus and the threefold description of him. The eyes of fire, he's able to see clearly and thus able to connect and commend and condemn if he needs to. He, when Jesus sees, he sees perfectly. Feet like burnished bronze, strength and judgment. But the one I want us to really remember today is Son of God. It's the only place in, the, in Revelation that Jesus is described as Son of God. And the cultural echo that I think was going on here, and I think I have a slide on that, is uh, Apollo was the god of that city, the patron god. When the, when the Romans came in and established that city, they brought with them, or actually it was the Greeks, they came in, they brought that god. That was, this was the god of the, of the soldiers. And he was Apollo. He was, he was uh, uh, known, he was a complex god. He was known as the son of God or the son of Zeus. He was the healer. He was the giver of light and truth. All those things were connected to Apollo. And the city at large looked at Apollo as their God. And then each union had another particular God. But here Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. Look to me for healing. Look to me for light. Look to me for truth. Because Apollo is not son of God. I am son of God. And then he goes, and this is a, a place that most preachers just skip over. And I wanted to emphasize this and reemphasize it. It's when he came into the church, he gave, there were six noble characteristics of this church. He looked at this church and he commended them for six things. And he says, you're energetic. I know your deeds. I'm, I see what you're doing. I know your love. For one another, I know your love for God. And this is the only church that's commended for their love. And he says, I know about your faith. You're grounded in, in this connection with me and belief and trust in who I am. I know your service, how you sacrifice for other people, how you serve other people, serve one another. I know your perseverance. You patiently endure when, when the job just isn't working when the when the ends are not meeting because you've lost your job. I know how you've patiently endured. You don't quit when it's rough. And he says, and this is the most wonderful. I know now you're doing more now than you did at the very beginning. Your enthusiasm, your work has increased. And I sat back when I when I read this, you know, and it's, it's so short, it's easy to read over. It's easy to listen to uh, what commentators say and and YouTube videos that call this the adulterous church, the compromising church. And I read that the, what the what he said about him. And I said, this is not an adulterous church. This is a wonderful church. This is an active church. If we were described like this. By an outsider that came in and said, man, your love is obvious. Your work, your generous deeds are obvious. And how you serve one another and how you are patient with one another. It would be a high compliment. And that's what Jesus is doing here. 
He's complimenting these people. He's saying, look at you, and you're getting better. You're getting better and better. What a great church. And as we look at this, their greatness is not in what they do. Their greatness is rooted in who they're serving and their focus on Jesus. And so it's not the greatness of these things, even though it's being displayed in their lives. Their connection with Jesus is being displayed in, in these ways. And so I don't want you to li- I don't want you to lose this when we get to the next session, next session, session, section right now. All right. This is a type of people they are. These are the type of people that you want to be like. All right. Don't lose that because he says in verse 20, nevertheless, and this is where we ended last week. Nevertheless, or yet some of your translations will say yet. Nevertheless, and here's a correction. Some people will call this a condemnation. I I don't think it's a condemnation. I think it's a correction. And if we don't understand this correction, we're going to be tempted to be discouraged. When we look at this correction that he that he uh, has to them. The way it has been emphasized in some of the writings that, I, that I've been reading, some of the sermons that I listen to, is for me to sit there and say, well, what more could Jesus expect? I mean, I'm doing all these things, <clears throat> working hard. The only church to be said, you're a church of love. You have faith and service and perseverance and you're getting better. And then we're condemned. It's like the salesman who he he uh, he has a sales goal and he works hard and he does. He sacrifices to get there. He does all he can to get to that point and he reaches that goal and he expects the sales manager or the boss or someone to say, good job. And he says, good job, but you need to do better. And you just get discouraged over something like that. <clears throat> That's not what's happening here. Jesus is not discouraging them, but he is saying this. He's saying, listen, as great as you are, as great as things are, there's something going on there that if you don't stop it, it's going to kill you. This is going to kill you if you don't stop. It's going to kill your deeds, your work, your service, your love will diminish. Your patience, endurance will, will no longer be an active characteristic of your life. This is like cancer. This is like a cancer that if you don't remove it, it's going to kill the church. Not everyone's involved. The whole church is not involved in this, but everyone needs to deal with it. And that cancer is Jezebel. Now, I have a a minute video here. Uh, For those of you coming the first time, when I went to Thyatira in in, uh, April, I just kind of spoke about whatever was on my mind. Here's a short clip of some thoughts on Jezebel. Jesus said, uh, I have this one thing against you. You tolerate uh, a messenger, a a teacher that he called Jezebel. I'm sure that's a reference back to uh, the the, uh, Old Testament reference of Jezebel, who was the wife of King Ahab. And... uh, some way she was leading them off into some kind of false doctrine. It says something about adultery and uh, 
I'm not sure if that's symbolic. We'll, we'll figure that out as I study it later. But anyway, uh, the Ephesians, they, had, they wouldn't tolerate, tolerate false teachers, but they were weak in love. And it seems this church was strong in love, but in this instance, weak in their doctrine. And so God calls us to have a balance of both. Not really a balance. I don't call it a balance. He calls it the right. He wants us to love properly and have our doctrine on properly. And that's difficult to do, to have, to, to, to know how to love and know how to not tolerate false teaching. All right, and that's what we're going to kind of look at. I call it the cancer of Jezebel. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going to the story of Jezebel. You can read that on your own. Uh, it's in, uh, I think it's in First Kings somewhere. I haven't written it down, but it's there. This problem of what I'm calling the cancer of Jezebel was almost identical to the problem that you find in Pergamum, the city that comes uh, right before this. There they called it the teachings of Balaam or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I said it right. Nicolaitans. It seems that here there's a particular person who had great influence on the church because it refers to her as a woman. It refers to her by name, uh, by a name, um, a prophetess. Uh, she proclaimed a prophetess is someone just who, who proclaims God's word. I am right now being a prophet. All right. Not telling the future, not anything like that. It, it means proclaiming God's word. And so when someone proclaims God's word, when you women teach, when you teach a class, you are being a prophetess. We don't use that terminology because we're attached too much to uh, miraculous prophecy. But that's really what it means. It means being a, a teacher. And so she is someone who's claiming to uh, she's claiming that she's proclaiming God's word. She's saying, basically, God told me. God said to me. And those those terms are often used and you've heard them in your conversation where people say to you, God told me or I feel God's telling me something. And you need to be very careful just because someone claims to hear God's voice doesn't mean that they hear it because that's what was going on here. She had a system of teaching is called the deep secrets of Satan. You know, and that's appealing. You know that you get on YouTube and you and you uh, you're you know, something all the stuff comes up and you see something about the mystery of the US UFO or something and you click on it. Ninety percent of you do or, or uh, a Bigfoot was found or something. You cl- you click on it because you want 90 percent of you will look at that because you're we all love mysteries. And we want to know about all these things. And that's what here she's saying. Listen, I want to tell you about the secrets of Satan. Things that other people don't know. God has revealed this to me. And she begins some kind of teaching here. And without going in depth, because we did uh, we did do that in the previous lesson on Pergamum. Basically, it's this. The problem she's teaching is tolerance that leads to compromise. Tolerance that leads to compromise. And this is counterculture for us today. We are taught over and over, don't 
Be intolerant. Be tolerant. And that's what she was teaching. She's saying, listen, I want you to be taught. You can be tolerant in this situation because you have to work. You have to make a living. And I had a Christian lady once tell me she was she had, was absent. She was being absent from a lot of assemblies. And I, I asked her, well, I've missed you. Where have you been? What have you been doing? And she said, well, I've been working. You've got to make a living. And my mind, I was very young at the time. My mind said, do you? Do you have to make a living? God calls us to make a living. But do you have to sacrifice, put something up as more value that that uh, my job is of more value than my faith? And that's where the compromise was coming, where she was saying, listen, you you uh, you can compromise in this area. You can you can partake of that fruit and in, uh, in, uh, in the vegetable offering that's to God. You can eat all those things as long as in your mind you're saying, I'm I'm not doing this to a God. I'm doing it to honor to keep my job. You could compromise. And he's saying, no, don't do that. There's a time to be intolerant. And we know that's true. You cannot tolerate cancer. It won't go away. Many of you in this audience have had cancer. You struggle with cancer and you know what it's like. You don't tolerate it. You go to the doctor and say, yes, get it out. It's going to hurt. There's going to be a lot of pain. There's a lot of it's, it's scary. But I need you to remove that. And that's what he's saying here. Someone is teaching the church here to participate in what is called sexual immorality and eating meats offered to idols. I tend at this point in my life to think that's symbolic. That was it was rooted in some actualities, but I think that's symbolic. But it really doesn't matter whether they were actually doing this or uh, in a symbolic way. Because what we can do, we can so emphasize that it's the eating of meats and the sexual immorality that we can dismiss and say, well, this doesn't apply to us. Because how many of us were tempted last week to participate in an idol worship, eating meats offered to idols? I will even ask for a raise of hands. None. All right. So we say, see, this doesn't apply to us. Now, in the sexual immorality, you know this church does not condone that. We've had people come forward and say, I've been I've participated in sexual immorality. I repent. Uh, I'm asking the church to pray for us. And that's happened right here in this congregation on multiple occasions. We don't put up with it. We we call it a sin. We say it's a sin. Uh, And so it's so if we look at this and say, well, it doesn't apply to us because we've already said that's wrong. But the Bible makes it clear that placing anything above God or participating in anything contrary to God's standard is spiritual adultery or idolatry. That's just it. Any time I put something above God, whatever, it can be Netflix. There's nothing wrong with Netflix for the most part. But I can turn that into an idol. I can turn many things, good things, into an idol. Anytime I put that above God, I am participating in spiritual adultery and spiritual idolatry. And that's the application to us. What is our Jezebel? Is there a Jezebel in our midst? 
Do we in, in the concept of a Jezebel? Is there some is there a concept here that's compromising and, and it's like a cancer that we need to cut out and say, no, we can't go there. We cannot compromise there. And it might be personal. It might. Be, I, I don't I don't know. I can't think of anything congregational because I would have to go to the elders and say, listen, this needs to be cut out. This is a cancer. We don't need to do this anymore. But in regards to your job and your relationship. In social media. All those things. Do you have a Jezebel in your life? You need to ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I'm putting above God? And it can be a good thing. As I said, it can be your children. We are to love and take care of our children, but we can turn our children into an idol. We can do the same with our wives and our husbands. So I need to look at my life and say, am I compromising God? Am I placing him below my advancement in my career? Am I doing something on the college campus or this high school campus that I'm that I am trying to gain status? So I'm I'm putting my status above God. I, I just want to be accepted by others. I want to be known as a nice person. So what am, am I am I compromising in that way? And we all need to look at that. These people in Thyatira were taught. You don't have to make a living. You really don't. You say, well, that take a lot of faith. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly where you have to go. And he's not saying sit around, and do nothing. All right. We, we, there's a lot of scripture that tells us get out there and get a job. And I've said it from here many times. But what he is saying is when it comes down to God in your job, when that when it comes down to that, there's one choice for the Christian. And that's God. It's not your job. And the punishment is severe here. Again, whether this death is figurative or literal, it makes no difference. Jesus is stating here, he says, here, here's the consequence of letting this cancer grow. And he uses the word suffering. Uh, he, she said, he says that she will suffer, this particular person, and those who are following her will suffer and will die and this is the very same word, suffering, that was used of the Smyrna Christians, one of the very first uh, church we went to. It says they will be, have affliction. Affliction is the very same word. And he's saying these, these Christians are suffering for my name's sake. And if these people don't repent, they're going to suffer too. Same word. And the point is this. There's terrible consequence to sin. There's, we, we do not need to make light of sin. Back when I did First John, you remember me talking about felony sins and misdemeanor sins? <laughs> you remember that? All right, I have to, okay, because otherwise I have to re-preach First John. All right, felony sins and misdemeanor sins and misdemeanor sins put Jesus on the cross. But we have a tendency to let those things slide. Well, that's just a little sin. That's just the way I am. And those things are terrible. There's terrible consequences. Adam and Eve were told, you eat of that fruit, you will die. And they did, and they did not fall down dead. They did not fall down that dead, but they suffered greatly. It was the beginning of their physical death. It was their spiritual death. And I thought many times what sorrow and suffering they found themselves to go through when they came upon Abel's body. When they saw death in their son, they knew it was because of what they had done. 
They must have suffered and sorrowed greatly, not only for his death, but because they participated. They caused that. The things that they did. And so what he is saying here is when it comes to this sin, there's horrible consequence. It's not just taking a bit of meat and saying, it's okay. God will understand. It's not participating in some immoral activity here and saying, well, I, I just have to do it in order to you know, do this for God. I'm doing it for God. And he says, no, there's horrible consequence. Don't do that. Again, the solution is the same. Repent. Repent. God is patient with them. He says, I've given her time to repent. I've given her time. And he says, unless these people repent, they're, they're, they're going to be hurt. They're going to, there's consequences here. Over in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, it, it says something like, The Lord is, uh, is slow um, to anger. That's the one where he's talking about a thousand years is a day and, and a day is a thousand years. And he says, don't count. My dad will quote it for me in the King James if I ask him. Don't count. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to say it without turning to the Bible. Come on, everyone. Yeah, don't count God's patience or his slowness. There you go. The Lord is not slack. I knew somebody would help me out. And I was going to turn over here and read it. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. But he's patient. Why? I'm trying to get you guys to participate here. <laughs> but he's patient. Why? Give us time to repent. All right. So that's what he's doing. He's giving us time to repent. He's giving these people time to repent. And the application to us is like, listen, don't wait for the Lord to come in judgment. Don't wait till the Lord shows up active in bringing the consequence of your sin upon yourself. Don't wait for that. God is giving you time here. He's, uh, he's, he wants to bear this sin for you, but repent. You need to change. You need to turn around. You need to stop compromising your faith. God's giving you that time. Don't think that God's patience is just allowing you to sin. It's allowing you time to repent. And he says, if not, in verse 23, then all the churches will know. He says, I'm going to have to do something. And all the churches are going to know. When I come in judgment to Thyatira, all the churches will know. Back a few weeks ago, David Nance was sharing with me and we were talking. We weren't actually talking about this verse, but we we're talking about Ezekiel. And he said, you know, the book of Ezekiel, the, the he said, I can tell you the theme of Ezekiel in just a phrase. And I said, good. Tell it to me. He says, then they will know. Then they will know. And I looked it up over 50 times in the book of Ezekiel. It says God's going to do something. Then they will know I am God. You think there's no God? You think nothing's going to happen? You think everything's... He says, this is going to happen, then you'll know. And the first half of the book is punishment. He says, I've given you time. I'm going to have to do something here. And I'm going to do this punishment, then you'll know. I am God. And then he turns around to the latter half of the book and he talks about promises. He says, I'm going to do this good thing. I'm going to do this good thing, and then they'll know I'm God. And then I'm going to do this good thing, and then they'll know I'm God. And that's, that, that's the echo I'm hearing here. It's the echo from the book of, uh, of Ezekiel where he says, listen, I'm going to have to go in there. I'm going to have to do something. And then all the churches will know that, literally it says, I am. Jesus is saying here, when I have to come in judgment, then they will know that I am. 
connected to the Gospel of John, connected to uh, uh, Exodus, where he says, I am who I am. This is the, the name of God. I am the one who searches hearts and minds. I am God Almighty. You will know that I am either through punishment or through promises. What's your choice? You're going to know I am. And I'm going to have to do this through punishment or I'm going to do it through promises. And you get to choose. And if we're in sin, we need to repent so he can show us who he is through his promises. A very interesting side note here. He doesn't say it's your hearts and minds. He talks about knowing your hearts and minds. <laughs> in, the, in the original language, it says your kidneys and hearts. <laughs> and I found that it, it's, it's funny, but that's, you know, that's expressions. You know, we, we use... We use all sorts of expressions to mean something, and we know what it means. I, I love you with all my heart. We're not talking about our physical beating heart. We're talking about our emotions and everything. Well, they didn't say hearts and minds. They said kidneys and hearts. And it meant their emotions and their thinking. All right? So it's the same thing. But I just thought I'd just give that to you free. And then he says, I know you to your very core. I'm going to allow you the consequences of your deeds. Good or bad, he says, I will give, he says, um, where is it? Um, am I looking in the right place? Verse 24, I know it's here. It's what happens when your vision gets a little bit. I will repay you, verse 23. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. That's one that's a good one that a preacher can use to make you scared. But here he's saying this. You know your deeds, these good deeds they're doing? The bad deeds some are doing. He said, you're going to get repaid. It's going to be according to my promises or it's going to be according to punishment. And I will repay you. I'm not, I'm not going to just let you work hard and suffer and do all these things and just say, well, that's, that's, that's just part and parcel of being a Christian. You signed up for that, buddy. He's not saying that. He's saying, you will be rewarded for what good you're doing. And if you don't repent of these sins, I'm going, you're going to, there's going to be some payment for those deeds too. And then he says, now I say, verse 24, now I say to the rest of you. And this is why I think he's talking to the majority here. The other part was a small group. It was going to infect the whole group. That's why he had to take care of it. But he's saying it's important to handle this cancerous element in the church. We don't want it to grow. We don't want it to kill the church. But he says, now listen, everyone else, all of you who are busy working, all of you who are doing what you're supposed to be doing, all of you who haven't been drawn into compromise, all of you who have, were in that compromise and you repented, you changed. I have something to say to you in its great encouragement. He says, I will not impose any other burden on you. Verse 24. And I heard an echo. Anyone know where that echo is? Acts chapter 15. Verse 38. Jews and Gentiles were beginning to come together and they're, they're having a lot of cultural problems uh can gentiles become christians was the problem and do they have to become jews before they become christians and a lot of things these gentiles are doing that are offensive to jews and they had this big meeting and we find about in acts chapter 
uh, 15. And there were there were a lot of things the Jews could have said, well, we would be feel more comfortable if you did this, this, this and this. But they said, there's four things. Just do four things. And we won't impose anything else on you. That, that's what was happening. You can you can read on your own own Acts chapter 15 uh, as they struggle with those. And Jesus does the same thing here. He says, listen, just don't do what they're doing. You see these Jezebel compromises? Just don't do that. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to impose any great burden on you besides that. But what do we do? What are we tempted to do? We see a sin. We see something going wrong. And we set up a bunch of rules. We set, we go to extreme. We don't want to get close to that. We uh, make a whole lot of laws and say, well, you, you know, you, you don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And we have all these laws. It's like the Jews who, in order to honor the Sabbath day, they built a hedge and they had rule after rule after rule after rule. And the book is thicker than the Old Testament of so many rules in order not to break or in order to honor the Sabbath. And the burden that was on them, Jesus said, boy, you you put the great burdens on the people. They can't they don't know this stuff. They can't follow all this stuff. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, I don't want you to lose your freedom in Christ. A lot of times we're bound by by tradition. We raise our tradition to laws. We lose the joy of the Lord in our lives. But Jesus said, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to place any other burden than this. Just don't do that. Just don't do don't get involved in that sin. Continue growing in your work. Continue rejoicing in the Lord. Continue serve one another and love one another. Just keep going like you're going. But when obvious sin stares you in the face, walk away from it. Run away from it if you need to. Don't do it. That's all I'm telling you. Don't get up so uptight in your thinking that if I'm not crossing the right T's and dotting the right I's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose my salvation. And a lot of you were raised in that environment that you just, well, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And the Bible's really clear what's right. Just do those things and don't do these things. And there's, you don't have to have a list of a hundred extra things that aren't in the Bible. That's not the way to live in the love of the Lord. Don't make non-essentials essential. Where's your focus is what he's saying. What's, who's this letter all about? Do I need to go back to chapter one? Do the five lessons again in chapter one to remind us what it is? Or do you remember? Do you remember what, what this letter is about? Jesus. Thank you. One person gets an A. <laughs> it's about Jesus. That's where our focus is. And we need to remind, be reminded again, it's not about all the do's and don'ts. Now, we, there's do's and there's don'ts. That's fine. But the focus is on Jesus. And part of that focus is when there's a cancer, we cut it out because that's focusing on Jesus. We have to do that. But don't cut out the heart when you're cutting out the cancer. And that's what we do sometimes. We cut out the heart when we're trying to cut out the cancer. And he says here, just hold on to what you have. What do you have, Thyatira? What do you have? They have the Lord. They have the Son of God. They have truth. They have light. They have health. They have healing. They have the Son of God. They have the Savior, the purifier of all sins. And he says, hold on. And you should know by now what that word is. I don't, I don't mean the Greek word. I mean... It means grab hold with both hands. Don't let that go. 
Just hold on to what you have. You have Jesus. Don't let him go. At Pergamum, they were told, hold tightly to the name of Jesus or the character of Jesus. And he's telling the fire tyrants to do the same thing. Just hang on to them. Both hands. Don't do that. Hang on to me. And I'll be all right. He who overcomes, he says, and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Some of you already know what the echo is. If you look down in your footnotes, it says Psalms chapter 2. And that's a messianic psalm. It's foretelling the rule of the Messiah, of, of the Christ. And if you read through that and you look at it, it's talking about Jesus. And it's talking about him overcoming and him having the authority. And this is a neat thing. This, this one hit me like a brick when I was thinking about this one. He says, listen, you think it's talking about me? Yeah, it's talking about me. But guess what? It's talking about you. It's talking about us. That messianic psalm that praises Jesus, that lifts him up, that tells him of his rule. He says, that's me, but it's you. And that just sends chills up my spine when I think of that. That this is talking about me. Psalms chapter 2, according to this passage right here in Revelation, is talking about me. And that's what we're doing right now. We're conquering the nations. Do you know that? One person at a time. We're not doing it with a tank. We're not doing it with an uh, airplane. We're not doing it with bombs. But we're doing it with love. One person at a time. This language is violent, but it's symbolic. Dashed and broken. They will be dashed. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. And you know what that's talking about if you think about it for half a second. That's exactly what happened to you. You came to Christ full of your old self, full of self, full of pride, doing what you wanted to do, not listening to anyone else, until your life hit a dead end, until it crashed, until you realized that you needed a Savior. And we were dashed to pieces by His love. By that cross, when we see Him on that cross and we think, my sin put Him there, and He values me that much. It dashes your spirit. It breaks your spirit. And a broken and a contrite heart comes to God, a repentant heart. And that's what we're going to do. Let me tell you a quick story about my friend Samu here. I've shared this, I think, in the past. That's Samu on the right-hand side. He was one of my co-workers in uh, Fiji. He and his wife, Marama, uh, <clears throat> migrated with the children to New Zealand. And when I go there, I, I, work, I work with him. Uh, the story I'm going to tell you is going to be hard for you to understand uh, emotionally. And I lived there for 18 years of my life, and I still don't understand it. But it has to do with their culture, and that's why I want you to see this connection. Samu is a high chief. It means nothing to us. It means a lot to them. I've seen the honor and respect people pay to him when they... One of the first things you do when you, when you meet someone in, Fijian, in Fiji, you say in Fijian, uh, where are you from? And the reason they do that is to establish relationships. So you're from there, you're from there, what village, what clan? Ah, and I, I saw a lady once, once get on the floor and clap her hands, dumbo, put her head down. You know, it didn't matter if it was a woman or a man. When she found out that he was her chief. He had never met her before, but the relationship she found out, that's my chief. Well, Samu was with a group of people. And another thing you can't understand is the 
the drinking of a, uh, of a plant. They crush it up, and it's called kava or yangana. You may have seen some pictures or movies of it or something. And this, this, this uh, drink is, um, is, uh, is important. It establishes relationships. It is so held in honor that I've seen them cradle the yangana root like a baby and stroke it and talk lovingly of it as they were presenting it to you. And they just go on. I mean, for, I'm talking about 15 minutes. I'm talking about this wonderful root. <laughs> all right. So I, I'm saying all this to say this. This is important. And they make this drink and they share it. And it's a certain way that they that they share the drink. Doesn't matter how that happens. But he was at a meeting with his um, with his fellow villagers. And one of his great aunts was there. And she was actually the one in charge. And she was a prophetess for the god Dakawanga, the shark god. And the, everyone knew that Samu had recently become a Christian and that he was rejecting a lot of the ways of the clan. He was struggling with that. He, didn't, he was young in faith at this time. And the pressure was on for him to change and compromise. And it's like, you can be a Christian, but you, you've got to do these things too. And his aunt, in the voice of Dr. Wanga, he said her voice was a man's voice when she spoke. In the voice of Dr. Wanga, prophesied that if Samu did not change his ways, that he would lose his wife and that one of his children would die within a year. It was a point that he had to decide, am I going to compromise or am I going to stand up for God? What am I going to do at this point? And it was a point of faith that if he had gone the wrong way, he would have been giving up his faith. He said, I stood up. And I walked across the room and out the door. And none of you know what it means. Let me tell you what it means. You have a bowl of yongana. And the rudest thing you can do in Fijian culture is to stand up above everyone else and walk between Dakawanga's prophet or a chief and that bowl. It, it would be like me walking up to you and spitting in your face, literally. All right. Maybe that was the emotion. He said, I walked out of there. People were like, oh, I can't believe it. And he said, I started walking down the road. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what to do. I thought I'd lost everything. I'd given up everything at this point. And he said, what, how, is God, how is God going to get me out of this situation? Because this, I, at that point, I said, God is you and not them. He said, a taxi drove up beside him. Now, this is the weird part of the story. Okay, this is the mystery that everyone likes. I don't have the answer to this, all right? A taxi drove up, opened the door and said, get in. He said, I was so depressed, I was so down, I was so in my thought that I just sat in the back seat. And I closed my eyes thinking, what am I going to do? And that taxi drove me to my house. I never told him where to go. He just drove me to my house. I looked up and my house was there. And he said, uh, I don't have any money. And the taxi driver said, I don't need it. And he walked out. He said, that was an angel. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But this guy picked him up, dropped him off, and he walked in and told his wife what happened. He said, in a year, his aunt, the prophetess of Dahawanga, lost her husband and lost one of her children. He never turned turned away. 
And that's an illustration of Solomon. Who, like these people in Thyatira, had a choice. And we don't have those kind of choices. Sometimes it's just being a part of a social club. Or being accepted around the coffee table. But this was a choice of life here. That he had to choose between God and his customs. And he chose God. And so we look at the people of Thyatira and Smyrna and Pergamum, Sardis next week, all these different people. We have choices to make. And in comparison, our choices sometimes are so small, so small. Saying no to some foolish person that's trying to give you some drug. That's a small thing. Someone that's trying to get you to compromise your faith. In a small way. And the Bible calls us, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Focus on Jesus. Do what he wants. The elders will come forward as we uh, have uh, an invitation song. I hope this lesson has encouraged you to stand up for the Lord, live for him. If it hasn't, if there's something in your life you need to share, please come forward as we stand and as we sing. I would love to tell you 